morning, everyone. Always a pleasure to be with you. And tonight we're going to look at a subject that we all know about. In fact, if I dare may say, uh, it's our reason for being. Because without God's plan for this, we would not be here. When I first came along into Christianity, uh, having come out of the synagogue, uh, I began to hear Mr. Herbert Armstrong. And he was talking about the kingdom of God. And the first scripture I remember was Matthew 6:33, And that's an excellent one to start with. So please, if you'll join me, go to Matthew. Matthew chapter 6. And we're going to look at three scriptures, and then we're going to elevate this kingdom to a higher spiritual plane and maybe see it as we haven't before. Matthew 6, verse 33. But as for you, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, that doesn't tell us a whole lot, except we're supposed to seek the kingdom. Well, that's good enough for me. But we need to go beyond that. So to get more information, let's go to the book of Luke, chapter Luke, chapter 14. And we'll get a little more information. That's going to be Luke, chapter 14, and beginning in verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, and in addition his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now, we know it really means loveless by comparison. In fact, we're not going to turn there, but if you look at Matthew chapter 10, verses 37, 39, the translation will read more like that. But we're looking at Luke because Luke gives us some specific information here. In addition to what we just read, he says, And whoever does not carry his cross, in verse 27, and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has sufficient for its completion? lest perhaps after he has laid his foundation and, and is not able to finish, all who see it will mock him, saying, This man began to build but was not able to finish. Or what king, when he goes out to engage another king in war, does not first sit down and take counsel, whether he will be able with 10,000 to meet him who is coming at him with 20,000? But if not, while his enemy is still far off, he sends ambassadors and desires the terms for peace. In the same way also, each one of you who does not forsake all that he possesses cannot be my disciple. Now let's remember, Jesus is the king. He is the gatekeeper. He is the door. Nobody comes to the Father but through him. So unless we are his disciples, we're not going to get to the kingdom of God. That's just all there was to it. No other way. So we better be his disciples. Now one way that we can garner the wherewithal to accomplish this is found in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 12. 
and we'll see what what see what Paul has to tell us. Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. I exhort you therefore brethren by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living sacrifice holy and well pleasing to God which is your spiritual service. Key is verse 2. Do not conform yourselves to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind in order that you may prove what is well-pleasing and good and the perfect will of God. That's the process by which we come to Christ, being transformed from the world and its society unto God. Now let's look at two parables in Matthew 13. I like Matthew chapter 13. <laughs> I call it the parabolic chapter because it's got more parables than you can shake a stick at. And we're only going to look at two. Each one is only a verse long. Uh, but there's a lot packed in here. Okay, that's Matthew 13. And we're going to pick it up in verse 40, verse 40. 44. Again, the kingdom of heaven is compared to a treasure hidden in a field, which a man, when he finds, conceals, and for the joy of finding it, goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. Oh, there's something special about that field. And the kingdom of heaven is compared to a merchant seeking beautiful pearls who after finding one very precious pearl, went and sold everything that he had and bought it. Now, obviously, on our level, we are looking at this pearl and it's the kingdom. And we are to give up everything we have to buy that special kingdom, that pearl. But we're now going to elevate it to its highest level. And I'm submitting to you that the pearl, the field, the treasure is us. We, the people of God, we are that special pearl, that special treasure. So who is the merchant? Who is the one who finds it? That individual is none other than the mighty El Elyon. He looks at us as special, and he's willing to give up everything. Now, why? What's his purpose? If I dare say, what's his game? Eh, he doesn't play games, but he has a purpose for it. I personally, I've been a junior astronomer for many, many years. I just love astronomy, and I always used to go to the planetarium shows, if I can. And I remember the planetarium people telling us, oh, these stars up there. And I thought they were telling me that there were about 150 billion stars or so until I realized, no, 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 no. They're not talking about 150 billion stars. They're talking about 150 billion galaxies of which the Milky Way is but one. 150 billion of them or so? And how many stars per galaxy? I don't think, I, 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 I couldn't count them. I don't know about you. You try counting 150 billion times, times what? Yeah. 
It takes you a lifetime and then some to count all those. Okay? But God's got them out there. What's he doing with them? What does he want to do with them? Oh, he's got a plan, all right. Long-range plan. Uh, you remember Fiddle Around the Roof? Terry, if I were a rich man, he'd build his big house. One staircase going up, one staircase going down, <laughs> and one just for show. God does nothing for show. Everything he does, everything he creates, he's got a purpose. What happened was, God wants to do something with those stars. But to do that, he needs the right help. Angels, he's got them by the gazillion. They can't do it. In fact, it's something very interesting. If you go back and read close enough in Exodus, you will read where God told the Israelites, I will send my angel before you, and he will lead you and guide you. But don't provoke him. My name is in him. He will not forgive that sin. Moses was terrified. Because Moses knew that Israel was a stiff-necked people and would sin. And he wasn't sure they'd ever survive it. So finally, if you read all the scriptures, he begs God. And he says, if you don't go up with us, then leave us here. Because Moses knew that God had the power to forgive. Let's put it another way. Truth is, God's a softy. <laughs> he really is. He's a softy. Read the book of Judges over and over again. Israel said, what a whoring after other gods. And cried out to him. Oh, big softy. He sends a helper. He sends a mighty man, a military man, a judge. Always, he's a softy. Well, God needs individuals who will be able to think as he thinks, exercise the power that he exercises. Angels don't cut it. So, once upon a time, way back when, and according to the scientists, the astronomers and their recent calculations with the red shift, you know, the force by which stars are flying out, the universe is expanding, they could measure that and reverse it. They might be able to figure out when it all started. And they've come up with about 13.842 billion years, give or take a million or so. But after all, when you're talking about 13 billion, what's a billion or two one way or the other? Give them a break. Give them some slack. He, God, comprised of two beings. The Logos that we know and the El Elyon decided we need a family. We need individuals comprised of our spirit, our essence, who will be able to carry our banner, our shields, and conquer and administer all that's out there. Billions of galaxies. And so they did. 13.8 billion years ago. You know what it says in, in Revelation 13 and verse 8? We won't turn there, but we can figure it out. 13. 
Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, slain from the foundation of the earth. Now, just what does that mean? Well, if we take it to mean when the earth itself was actually created, and then all goes back at least that far, that's about four and four half, four, four and a half billion years. Now, if we go back to when it first was formulated in the mind of God, you're going back to 13 billion years. Now, you talk about long-range planning, strategic planning. God, God's the master of it. So he figured it out. Okay, we got to have it like this. We got to have the universe this way. We got to have the forces and the magnetism. And all the planets that get lined up to make this earth perfect for man. And so they figured that out. But then they came to the stickler, the stickiest, thorniest of all. If we're going to have man develop and grow that way, he's got to have free moral agency. And if he has free moral agency, that means he's most likely going to sin. He's going to break our standards. And we are holy, righteous, and pure. And we cannot abide sin. What are we going to do? Talk about counting the cost? Oh, you better believe. Those two beings counted the cost. And they knew if for man, somebody was going to have to die for them. And they finally came to the conclusion one of them. And that became the Logos was the one. The Yudhevavhe of the Old Testament. He was the one who would agree to die for them. You talk about expensive merchandise for us. God does not ask of us anything that he has not already done himself. He asks us to give up father, mother, sister, brother, everything we have, including our own lives. He already gave up his life for it. But think, that's how much he wants us. Oh, I know he loves us. Sure, we know John 3.16, God so loved the world. That's known throughout the world. In fact, it's probably the most beautiful, one of the most beautiful scriptures in the Bible, known throughout all Protestantism. But the fact that God says these individuals are going to be worth my life. I want them that badly. About a year ago, I remember giving a message and uh, I was talking about maybe filming it, you know, and I said, we need someone like a Cecil B. DeMille. <laughs> and Steve, of course, pointed out I was dating myself. <laughs> You're right, Steve, I was. Well, now I'm going to date myself further. In the 50s, there was a song, not a very big song, didn't make the really hit charts, but, but it wasn't among the top 40, that's true. And remember the song about Lola, whatever Lola wants, Lola gets. Well, whatever the mighty El Elyon wants, the mighty El Elyon is going to get, no matter the price. And he said, us. And there we are sitting. And who comes along? You know, that, that snake, that Hasatan, that, you know, that guy. The one Jesus says is a murderer and a liar from the beginning. And he says, God, what are you doing? Look at those miserable, good-for-nothing losers. But you see, 
That's how not that's not how God sees it. And we have to see it as God sees it, through his eyes. He doesn't see any of us as losers. He knows what was going to happen, and he prepared for it. Turn over to Malachi. The last prophet, chronologically speaking. The prophet Malachi. And we'll go to chapter 3, and we will go to verse 17. And God is speaking, and they shall be mine, talking about his people, says the Lord of hosts, in the day that I will make up my own special jewels, diamonds, gold, emeralds, sapphires. That's how God looks at us. He looks down the corridor of time, and he sees us perfected. Now, those of you who are in the far-flung corners of the earth may not sing this particular song very often, but many of us in America do. It is perhaps the most beautiful, moving hymn ever written. It's called America the Beautiful. It was put to words by a school teacher on vacation in the 1890s. And she looked out one day in the hotel room. That came before her. Oh, beautiful for spacious skies, for amber ways of grain. But I want to concentrate on the two middle verses with two refrains. One, America, America, may God that gold refine. America, America, God meant your every flaw. That's what our God is doing. He's mending our flaws. He's refining the gold. And that takes pressure. That takes heat. That takes time. That takes effort. He knows it's a long haul. He knows it takes a lifetime. And every time we go and we stumble, <laughs> like a test, oh God, you're still out of it. God says, no, no, no. Gold is being refined. My people are realizing they made a mistake. They fell. They shouldn't have done that. And so they're calling upon me. They are repenting. And I am hearing them. That's how God looks at it. Every time we get up and go forward, our flaws are being bended. Gold is being refined. Remember, God wants us. He's got that plan for us. We're not sure exactly what it is. I can maybe get an inkling, but that's all. Look at chapter 12 of the Gospel of Luke. Luke, chapter 12. And see what Jesus says about God, the kingdom, and us. Luke, chapter 12, and verse 32. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father delights in giving you the kingdom. He wants to give it to us. Not just, he says, oh, I've got this thing here, take it or leave it. No, 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 no. He wants us. He wants us because we are part of his family. Family. Oh, I wish other churches of God could understand family. Do you know one of the most effective governments that ever existed was an evil government, but it was effective. 
we know it is Cosa Nostra. That's it, our thing. This old Sicilian Italian mafia. But it was family. And there would be meetings. And sometimes the Don, the chief Don, was explaining something. And it would burst a young nephew, whoever he was. And something happened. He didn't like it. And he thought that this plan was ridiculous. And he's mouthing off to the Don. And the others, they're, they're about to smash him. The Don holds up his hand. says, no, no, no. Come, come. What is it? And he speaks. And he talks. Ten minutes, twenty minutes, doesn't matter. The Don is patiently listening. Finally, the Don asks, are you through? You finished? And the response was, yes, my God, I am finished. Good. Come, sit down. He sits down. This is the Don, patient, the chief one. And he's going to say to this little peon, this nephew, whoever he is, come, sit down. And he takes his hand and he pats him on the cheek and he's a good boy, such a good boy. Now listen. The Don is saying, now listen, talk about patience. I hear you. I heard what you said. There's some merit to what you said. But listen. And he goes and explains the plan, what it is. And finally at the end, he says, we need everyone to help in the project. Can I count on you? Will you be there to help us? What's he going to say? He has been completely won over. And so the little little young nephew, the young junior member, says, yes, my Don, with all my might. Don once again pats him on the face and says, good boy, now go and do what what you need to do. Why did the Don do that? Family. You don't diss family unless family is really rebelling against you. This guy wasn't rebelling. He was just a little frustrated. And the Don had the patience. Now, I remember being part of an organization. And if you ever went to any one of those top leaders there and started to say this and that and the other thing, oh, 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 you're presumptuous. You're in a bad attitude. You're rebellious. And anybody who was there knows exactly what I'm talking about. But the father never does that. We're his children. He loves us. He wants us. We've got to work together. He doesn't put us down. He will never put us down. I'm going to do that. You see, his kingdom is dreams. He's dreaming of a big kingdom. I once saw a caption. A cat. Kitty cat. It's just cute, really, if you've ever seen it. A waste paper basket. And you know how cats like to back up in the little baskets or whatever there's there. They, they, they feel comfortable that way. And here's a little kitty cat. And his paws are up over the edge. And there's his face. And below is the caption, dreaming big. And so in the space above, you know, where what he's dreaming was the massive head of an African lion with a mane. Oh, he's dreaming big. God is dreaming bigger. He's dreaming bigger of a family that's going to govern the universe. You know, in business, and I've dealt with a number of businesses in my career as tax practitioner, and I've seen businesses grow. And the most effective business 
is always a family-owned and operated business. And you've heard, you've heard it on the radio, on the television, so-and-so business, family-owned and operated. <laughs> well, guess what? The biggest kingdom of all, the biggest enterprise of all, the kingdom of God is going to be family-owned and operated. So, as a family-owned and operated business, it's true, we're all equal in that. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians 12. And Paul is bringing out a very, very special message here. He's talking about the body as one. And I'm going to bring it there. Remember about chapter, uh, where are we here? Chapter 12. Yeah. He starts out with chapter 12 and goes all the way through chapter 26. Now we're not going to read it all for time. What Paul is talking about, the body is made of many parts. The eye, the ear, the mouth. The eye says, well, I am important because I see. If you didn't have me, you couldn't see anything. And the ear says, yes, but without me, you couldn't hear anything. You couldn't hear any words. You couldn't hear anybody talk. And the mouth says, yeah, but look at me, you couldn't eat without me. And the nose and the smell says, yeah, but oh, smelling those beautiful flowers. Oh, a sumptuous dish of food. You'd never be able to smell it. So Paul is saying, look, we've all got a part. We've all got a function. Now, in the world of sports, and I'm, I'm, I'm a sports fan, but uh, my favorite game is baseball. That's because baseball's laid back, and I'm laid back. I'm not really an action guy. I'm just not. I'm not that much. Football is bone crushing. But basketball's got to be probably the most grueling of them all. You're up and down that court. Well, one of my favorite players of all time uh, was one who played for the old Philadelphia 76ers. His name was Wilt Chamberlain. They called him Wilt the Stilt because he was seven feet two inches high. He dominated. But he had perfected what is called a skyhook shot. And he could run down the right side of that field, balance, take up and over. 50, 20 feet, and swish. Of course, he couldn't save his life with a, with a free throw. He used to joke about it. He missed as many as he made. But, oh, those skyhook sky shots of his. But you know what made that possible? <laughs> Talk about the body. The itty-bitty little pinky toe. If you know anything about the foot and how it's made, I had a podiatrist explain to me one day. It's a master of creation. But that toe provides the balance. If you don't have that little toe, you don't have the balance, you can't get that shot off. Without Wilt's pinky toe, it was nothing. Which is the whole lesson. We're all part of a kingdom. We're all part of a body. God wants us, all of us, working together. That's his whole plan. That's his whole purpose. And there is equality. 
look at what, excuse me, look at what Jesus said. If I can find it here quickly enough. Um, in Luke and in John. His was a master. A master at it. Oh, here we go. Let's look at uh, John. Let's look at Luke 12, 4 first. Luke 12, chapter 4. And this, Jesus says, almost in passing. But look what he says. But I tell you, my friends, he's talking to his disciples. What about Lord and Master? He doesn't say that. He says, my friends. Now, look how he further expounds upon that. We're going to go to, we're going to, go to John. John chapter 15. John 15, and beginning in verse 13. What he says, John 15 and verse 13. And he says, talking to his disciples, well, beginning, yeah, verse 13. No one has greater love than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. If you do what I command you, no longer do I call you servants. You're not servants. You're not beneath me. I am not up above you looking down at you. Because a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends because I've made known to you all the things I have heard from my father. I've withheld nothing. We are together. Remember the talking about the first fruits? Well, it's equal. As a human being, he was equal to his disciples. Yes, he was, he was the begotten son of God. Yes, he was God incarnate. But he was dealing with them as individuals because he knows, he knew that in the kingdom they would all be of the same spirit. That's almost mind-boggling when you realize what that implies. And we'll get there. We will get there. In that kingdom, the firstborn, he is a firstborn of many brethren. But many years ago, Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong came up with a phrase. He was talking about our destiny become, is to become God, as God is God. He wasn't sure about that. He called a meeting of the Stop Evangelists. He says, look, I'm coming to realize this. Now, please, shoot it down. Well, they couldn't shoot it down. Now, what he meant was that in composition, not in function. You see, we think of kingdom as a hierarchy. No, no, there is no hierarchy. There is function. That's what it is. It's function. The divine father of lights and spirits will always be the grand patriarch. And he functions as the grand patriarch. But if our spirit is equal to his, that means we are God as he is God. We have all the power, all the might, all the glory, the same as he does. Because if we don't, then all this is worth nothing. God's plan was to have us this way. So we could go out there and do whatever he could do. Look at what, let's look at the first, Romans 8, verse 29. Romans 8. 
29. Because those whom he did foreknow, he predestinated to be conformed to the image of his own Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. He's the firstborn. But among many brethren. He's one of the brethren. But because, as you know, the firstborn, special preeminence to the firstborn. So the Son, the Christ, the risen Christ, will always function as the preeminent firstborn. In Islamic terminology or Turkish empire, there was a caliph and there was a grand vizier. The caliph was the one in the palace. He held down the glorious throne. But he didn't do much of the work. Carrying out his wishes and the empire was the grand vizier. Well, father is the caliph. Or caliph is a father, however you want to look at it. And Christ, well, he operates as the grand vizier. He goes and organizes the army. He organizes the universe. He goes and plans out everything. Of course, he discusses it with the father. But this is what they are. They're equal. We are equal. It's almost enough to blow your mind, but it's true. Now, look, we're at Romans. Let's look at Romans 8, verses 15 to 19. Now you have not received the spirit of bondage, again to fear, but you have received the spirit of sonship, whereby we call up, we call Abba, Father. The spirit itself bears witness conjointly with our own spirit. Communicating. God's Holy Spirit, our spirit within us. Testifying we are the children of God. Now, if we are children, we are also heirs, truly heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Indeed, if indeed we suffer together with him, we also may be glorified together with him. I, in my business, I've learned about joint heirs and family and so forth, wills. A joint heir, Paul used that term. Now, either Paul used the correct term or he didn't. <laughs> Paul either got it right or he blew it. Well, I don't believe he blew it. He got it right. And he's saying that we are joint heirs with Christ. Now, how's that possible? Unless when we're resurrected, we're going to have the same glorious body he does. And that's the only way we're going to ever be able to inherit what he inherits. He's inheriting the universe, full of glory. And it says there together, the, with the glory, right? We may be glorified together with him. Paul's talking about complete equality with the Son, and we'll see with the Father as well, except in function. Yes, different functions. We'll perform different duties, but the same substance, the same power, the same might. Almost enough to blow your mind. But it's true. Now look, the only way we can have it is if our body is just like Christ's body. Look at Philippians. Philippians, the third chapter. 
Philippians 3, and we'll take it at verse 20 and verse 21. Philippians 3, verse 20 and 21. He's talking about, for us, the commonwealth of God exists in the heavens, from where also we are waiting for the Savior. Who will transform our vile bodies that they may be conformed to his glorious body. There we are. This whole idea, just like this whole concept has been hidden in plain sight. All this knowledge, God had it in his word for over 2,000 years, but the world couldn't see it. You know one of the reasons why. One of the most damnable heresies of all. The Trinity. If you've got a Trinity, you've got a closed Godhead. There is no room for a family. That's what Satan did. He closed the minds of so many people that they couldn't understand what God had in store for them. And that's what he's got in store for us. This is mind-boggling. We're going to inherit his glory. Now let's also take a look uh, in John. We're going to take a look here. Is it going to be in John for here? We read this every Passover time. The Gospel of John. John, well, first we go to John 17. Yeah, John 17, verses 20 and 21. John 17. Okay. It says, John says, We'll pick it up in verse 20. I do not pray for these only. He's talking to his father. And he's talking about the disciples that are there with him at that last dinner, that last night before he was crucified. He said, I don't pray for these only, but also for those who shall believe in me through their word. That includes us. We're the ones believing. That they all may be one. Now, that's kind of tough. See, I know some of the guys around here in, in, in churches of God, and I got to be one with them. Yep, I got to be one with them. Whether I like it or not, I got to be one with them. How am I going to do that? By God's Spirit. That's what's going to do it. So he says that they all may be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. We are going to be one together, all of us, wherever we are. We are going to be one together as the Father and Christ are one. Okay, if that's not enough to boggle your mind, read what he says next. That they also may be that they also may be one in us. That means God says we are going to be one with Christ and one with the Father. It's like Alexander Dumas, Three Musketeers, all for one and one for all. The Father, Christ, and all of us going to be one in equality but not in function of course God wants that yes he does God thinks enough of us that he is willing to be at one with us 
Yes, he does. Even though I sometimes get impatient. I do. I'm supposed to overcome. I'm supposed to control my mind. Let me confess one sin, if I may, with you. Second Corinthians. Second Corinthians, chapter 10. I believe verse 5 comes to mind. Second Corinthians 10. Yes, here we are. We'll start in verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the overthrowing of strongholds, casting down vain imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every, bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Oh, that's hard. That's a tall order. I'm a type of individual, I, I read and I see things wrong, and I, oh, sometimes I go like this. It's a good thing I'm not God yet. I've got to control myself. And when I start saying I want to smash, it's as though my father saying, cool it, Mike, cool it, chill out a bit. I know how you feel. I know what you're thinking. Believe me, I've seen the same thing for over six, some 6,000 years. I've seen a lot more than you have. And if you can understand and imagine what I had to go through while those insolent individuals murdered my son, he had to control himself. He did. Jesus said, don't you know I could ask for 12 legions of angels? Just think what two of those angels did to Sodom and Gomorrah and the city's on the plain, and he could have 12 legions. Jerusalem would cease to exist. But you see, he says, but you're not ready yet. I got to refine your gold more. I got to remind, I, I got to mend your flaws more. I want you, but I want you to perfection. I want all my people to perfection. I want all my brothers, your brothers and sisters to perfection. Because there's going to come a day, yes, when that trumpet is going to sound. And you're going to be up on that sea of glass. And my son is going to give you direction. And he will give the signal. And you will descend with him. And yes, then you will begin to right every wrong. You will be able to correct all those mistakes and problems in due time. Got to work at it, though. We have, you gotta, we have to go for perfection. And that's what God does. He wants perfection in us. But what are we yet to do? Well, I think Paul summed it up best. He summed it up in Philippians. And it's one of the most moving statements, at least for me. Philippians 3. And we'll begin it. In verse 12, not as though I have already received or have already been perfected, but I am striving so that I may also lay hold on that for which I also was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not count myself as having attained, but this one thing I do 
forgetting the things that are behind, reaching forth to the things that are ahead. The kingdom, glory, splendor, righteousness. I press toward the goal for the prize of the high calling of God in Jesus Christ. That plan, way back when that was in the mind of both of those two God beings. Paul says, I'm pressing forward. I'm not going to stop. See, because in my tank, got to get up the hill, like a 45 degree angle, a hill to the kingdom. How am I going to get there? What have I got? I don't have gasoline. Well, remember the old, if you can remember the old joke, advertising, put a tiger in your tank. (laughs) I remember that. And there was a cartoon (laughs) when one tiger finally catches up to the other tiger. And one tiger says, hey man, where you been? You smell like gasoline. (laughs) Somebody's tank. Well, no, not a tiger in a tank. Mm -mm, Not that. Nuclear power? Uh Uh-uh, not nuclear power. What is the power in our tank? You can read it in Genesis 1-2. Hovering over the waters. Ruach Elohim, the Spirit of God. The most powerful force in the universe. The force that built the universe, created it. God spoke the word and the Spirit went into action. See, that Spirit is going to get us up that hill. That spirit is going to get us across the finish line. And Paul says, my father wants me. My elder brother wants me. I can't let him down. I'm pressing forward. That's what we have to do. We have to keep on keeping on. We've got to keep on pressing on. The father sacrificed everything he had for us. So let's not disappoint him. For us, it's upward and onward. It's pressing on. It's keeping on, keeping on. It's that glorious kingdom. When the trumpet sounds, he's there waiting for us. So let's keep pushing on. Let us not disappoint our Heavenly Father.